And perhaps you could have that passage open in front of you, at John chapter 8, page 1073. Let's pray. Father God, we come here this morning like those disciples of Jesus that we read about a few weeks ago when Jesus asked them whether they too, like the crowds, would leave him. Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Father God, you speak words that bring life to us, life for now and life for eternity. So Lord, we pray that we would hear your voice and that we would receive from you the new life that you want to give to us today. Amen. Before we even start to look at the contents of today's passage, I thought it would be important to try and deal with the the superscription uh, that's there in the NIV text. So if you were paying attention while we were reading, you might have noticed that there's a line drawn before and after the text. And it says there, the, the little title tells us, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 53, sorry, 7 verse 53 to 8 verse 11. So that uh, might surprise you when you you see something like that. Um, By the way, it's not the only time we see it. Flick back quickly uh, to Mark chapter 16. So it's the very last material in Mark's gospel. Page 1024. And you'll see the same, uh, the same heading there, the NIV flagging up the same issue uh, in the same kind of wording. So let me very briefly explain what's going on here and also suggest how we would read uh, passages like this when we're doing what we do here in a series in, in John's Gospel. John's Gospel, as we have it today, has come to us through a a centuries-long process. Those early centuries were a time when Gospel manuscripts were copied by hand and recopied countless times. Although we don't have John's original, uh, nobody can find or has on display in any museum anywhere this is John's Gospel, written by John's hand, the, the papyrus uh, retained for us to come and view. We have a huge amount of copies of John's Gospel, uh, which validate each other when, the, when a copy of a manuscript has countless other similar copies beside it. The more of those copies there are, the more the authenticity of that document is attested historically. That's 
how these uh, things are, are, are understood. And there's considerably more textual evidence for the New Testament than for the other documents of the time. So generally, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those Gospels written about Jesus Christ, and we can say that they are, are accurate, and we're happy to take that view. By the way, if you want to learn more about that, we've put a, a document up on the website, uh, a PDF of F.F. Bruce's classic book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Go on there in the, the teaching section and the resources section, and you'll be able to read uh, some of that and see uh, how it is that the, the New Testament came to us and how we can be sure that it's reliable. So what we have here then in this particular section with this superscription is the NIV translators drawing our attention to a reality that this passage doesn't have the same level of textual support as most of the rest of John's gospel and most of the rest of the gospels. We can be confident of the other parts of John's gospel, but we're somewhat less confident that this material here came from John's pen uh, and that it was recorded uh, as his. So I wanted to flag that up for you and I wanted you to be aware that that's what's going on here. I've, I've no desire to keep that from you. How then do we read a passage like this? Let me make two simple suggestions. First of all, if there's a question mark over the authenticity of a biblical passage, my suggestion is that we don't allow that text on its own to become the basis of any crucial theology. We don't allow that text on its own to become a foundation on which we build some significant belief about God. The second thing I think we should do with passages like this is ask ourselves, does what we read here ring true with all the other passages of which we can be confident? We know they came from John's gospel and that they're received by the church as the inspired word of God. So we look out for some sort of consistency of message. So maybe this morning, as we're thinking together now about the content of this, you could run that test in your mind, does this sound like the kind of thing that Jesus would say? Are these actions the kind of actions that I'm used to seeing from Jesus Christ? Just wanted to, to put that out there. There's a whole world there that you can now run away and research with the PDF. That'll only start you, and off you go uh, on a lifetime journey of studies in the ancient texts, um, but probably enough for this morning. This passage this morning deals with a story of entrapment. John tells us that in verse 6. The question that's asked here that serves as the basis for the whole scene is used by the preachers, the teachers of the law, to find a basis for accusing Jesus. And to understand the trap, we need to be as clear as we can about the, the scenario um, which, which leads to the question. So Jesus has made the 80 mile or so journey from Galilee, where he lives and, and spends the majority of his time. He's come on a, a 
pilgrimage to the Feast of Tabernacles. David was sharing something of that background with us uh, last week. And on this particular occasion, Jesus is sitting and teaching in the temple. And it's while he's there teaching that the religious leaders drag a woman, uh, and you can sense that they're, they're almost throwing her on the ground before him. She's been caught in the act of adultery. They throw her before Jesus, but also now we know before a crowd. It's all very public. It's all about shaming her and disgracing her and accusing her. And then they turn to Jesus and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. In the law, law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? So she was caught in the act of adultery, and the Pharisees called for the death penalty. Actually, that's valid by their standards and in their culture. In Leviticus 20, the law states that the adulteress should be put to death. The the law, by the way, also says that the man should be put to death, but conveniently, he's not on the scene here. Uh, We're not quite sure why that is. The law also states that for a person to be convicted of a crime, there must be at least two eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to the act of adultery. Picture the scene. Peeping Pharisees around her window. How long did they watch? How much did they see? What was going on in their hearts? John's already told us that this this isn't about the woman. She's a pawn in, in a game the religious leaders are playing. She's the bait in the trap, and Jesus is the one that they're trying to catch. As the woman lies trembling, fearing for her life, the religious leaders turn to Jesus and they ask him, now what do you say? What makes this such a dangerous trap for Jesus? Well, it's because the religious leaders have caught Jesus between the two things that he loves most. Jesus loves people. That's evident for anyone who's ever read any part of the Gospels. Jesus loves all sorts of people, even people that no one else loves, even people who get things wrong, people who mess up, people like this woman lying on the ground here in this scenario. Elsewhere, the religious leaders gave him a nickname. They called him a friend of sinners. So much did he love people. Jesus loves people, but he also loves God. He not only loves God, he claims to be from God. He claims that God is his Father. We've seen that uh, as we've been reading so far in John's Gospel. So if he loves God and if he's from God, then he'll want to uphold the law of God. And the law given to Moses says that adulterers must be punished. The Pharisees have him. 
They've caught him between the two things he loves most. Between sinful people and the perfect law of God. In effect, Jesus is faced here, I think, with the same dilemma that we each one face when we are confronted with sin in another person. Will he join the Pharisees and condemn the woman and show that he's no friend of sinners after all? Or will he condone her sin and show that he's not entirely committed to God's law? What are you going to do, Jesus? Condemn or condone? Those are the two widely practiced responses to sin when we find it in another person. On the one hand, we condemn. Even if we're not like the Pharisees or the religious leaders, even if we're not actively out trying to catch people in their sin, once, once we see it, once it comes to our attention, once it somehow offends us, we condemn That approach didn't die out with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The second way we deal with sin when we find it in another person is that we condone it. We forget about what God's law might have to say uh, on these things. We, We make it out that it's no big deal. When someone's hurting us or hurting others or hurting themselves, we say, don't worry about it. No sweat. Each to his own. And we condone. And I'd guess that this approach to sin is increasingly pervasive in our culture today. When we find ourselves confronted with sin, we condemn or we condone. So Jesus, what do you say? When you find yourself confronted with sin in another person. Nothing very much actually. If you read the story. At least not at first. Jesus de-escalates the situation wonderfully. uh, With the element of surprise. Whenever the Pharisees confront them. Whenever we're ready for the the death penalty to be announced. Or some scandalous uh, release for the woman. Jesus instead... John tells us, verse 6, bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. You know, one thing I've learned in the years I've had of studying the Gospels and trying to share them with you is that Jesus Christ is quite simply the smartest person who ever lived. These Pharisees who try to take him on I, I feel quite sorry for them by now because I know this is only ever going to go one way. His answers are always brilliant. The way he handles this highly charged, this deeply complex situation, quite brilliant. In one short sentence, he takes a thing and turns it upside down. He stands up from his writing. He faces the woman's accusers and he says... If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. 
In the minds of the Pharisees, it was all about her. All about her sin. But now Jesus makes it about theirs. The story starts with the woman being the sinner thrown in shame before a watching crowd. And it finishes with her accusers embarrassed, shameful, dropping their stones and quietly going back to where they'd come from. When they have left, it's just Jesus and the woman. And he asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you. Do you see what Jesus has done in this one brief moment? He's shown the Pharisees and the religious leaders that their own sin disqualifies them from passing judgment and from condemning this woman. And now, Jesus Christ, the only perfect person who ever lived, the only person qualified to judge a woman like this, chooses not to. Paul was right when he said it about Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you're here today and you are carrying a burden of condemnation that's crushing you. You've done something or maybe even a number of things or a lot of things wrong. And you feel the condemnation of other people. You maybe feel the condemnation you pass on yourself. And maybe you believe that God is condemning you. Stick close to Jesus Christ. Neither do I condemn you. Most of what we've looked at here this morning is about Jesus in contrast to religious people choosing not to condemn. The last sentence shows us that he doesn't condone either. As soon as he's made it clear that her life is to be spared, Jesus makes it clear that this woman can live a new and a different kind of life. I wonder are you here this morning where you feel that sin in your life is being condoned? You're telling yourself, it's all right. It's no big deal. Those around you are saying the same. Don't worry about it. We're not judging you. And maybe you believe that God is condoning your sin too. Come close to Jesus Christ.
And you'll see that he would never do that. He'd never condone your sin. He loves you far, far too much to do something like that. To see you living a way that's destroying you and destroying the other people around you and destroying your relationship with his, his father. He wouldn't condone that. He'd say, go and live differently. Live the way you were born to live. Jesus Christ doesn't condemn and he doesn't condone. The incident that we have thought about here today isn't the only or the last time or the most important time when Jesus Christ was caught between the sinners he loved and the demands of a holy God. That's precisely where he found himself, or, or I should say where he placed himself as his ministry came to a climax on the cross. When he was confronted with the, the, the sin of humanity, he refused to condone. Jesus understood, along with his Father, that our rebellion, our abuse, our rebellion against God, our abuse of each other, needed to be punished. And although we stood guilty, he refused to condemn. Instead, he stepped in and took the, the penalty our sin deserved. Jesus doesn't condemn or condone. He chooses to do something different. He chooses to forgive. And so... While they're nailing him to a Roman cross, he, he cries out to his father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Folks, I hope that with every, every time we come to God's word, every time we see another incident where Jesus does something or says something, you see more of who the living God revealed in Jesus Christ really is. My prayer for you is that as that happens, God's Spirit would open your eyes to see who He is, that He would draw you closer to Him and, and deeper with Him. And I'm going to finish this morning not by praying for you, but by leaving you some space to pray along the lines of what we've been thinking about here today. You might want to thank God that he doesn't condemn. You might want to take this moment to, to remember that actually he doesn't condone either. And I'm sure we'll all want to praise him for the forgiveness that he offers us all in Jesus Christ. Let's take two or three moments in the silence to, to offer all of this back to the living God. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you that you don't condemn us. You don't write us off. Father, we thank you too that you don't condone our sin. You don't encourage us to live sickly, selfish lives. Father, thank you that in Jesus Christ you have done something entirely different. In an unforgettable way, you've shown us your love for us on the cross. Rising from the dead, Jesus shows us the power that is at work in this world to bring newness of life. Lord, we pray that we would be people willing to to say that we're forgiven, that we are sinners, but that you have loved us and forgiven us. And Lord, make us people eager to discover the new life that Jesus wants to birth in us. We pray all this because we really love Jesus. We're learning to see his beauty and we want to follow him in this world. We pray it in his name. Amen.